Hey there, it's Kelly from Zinimi. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to invite you to one of our greatest trainings ever. It's how to build and grow a profitable solo or group practice sustainably. All you got to do is check it out at zinimi.com slash podcast. All right, on to our episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Starting a Counseling Practice Podcast. And today I am joined by Sonila Sidaris, a psychologist in Chicago who runs a group practice and a nonprofit. I'm really excited to share her story with you so that you can hear about other ways to serve your community and what that looks like from the real truth. <laughs> Uh, experience that Sunila goes through managing it all. So Sunila, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's talk about when you went into private practice. How long ago was that? And what did it, how did it first start? Oh, goodness. So I actually, my background is I'm a social worker. I was working in nonprofit for a few years, then I moved to Chicago for my doctorate in clinical psychology. And so I think it was like the last year where in clinical psychology, we call it internship, but it's really more of a kind of like a residency. And everybody was kind of like, what am I going to get my internship? Because it's the last thing to finish. And I was kind of like, I had a baby during a program very heavy program to, to, to finish and to complete. And so I didn't feel like I wanted to just rush into like the internship right away. It felt like I want to do something different. At this time, 2014, I've been working for nonprofit for over since 2006. So what is it? Eight years. And so, uh, no, oh my gosh, it's not eight years. It's 2006. Help me here. Uh, it's eight, it is about eight years, eight years in private practice. And I was like, you know, I just want to do something different. I know that I want to help the community. I know that I want to go uh, work with nonprofit, but it felt like I couldn't really like stand up financially and definitely emotionally, psychologically, um, because it pulls for you, right? You put so many hours in and then you don't really have time for yourself or family and I this time as I mentioned he was um I think two years old so I decided to just see what programs would be there to teach me how to have a private practice because I had no clue like most of therapists uh and so I was googling uh, <laughs> private practice and this was during the time where I finished my internship during my internship, finished my internship. And then I was supposed to actually get my postdoc hours because without those hours, you just don't get licensed. As simple as that. And so I searched for it. And I remember I talked to Miranda. It was September. Um, and I talked to Miranda about with a phone consultation. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do this. And then I also had this great opportunity to work for a nonprofit, which I did work for five years. Um, an LGBTQ community. I didn't know much about LGBTQ. It was a handful of people I'd worked with, transgender, you know, so I, would, I, would, I was eager to learn new things. 
So I was like, I can open my private practice and then I can also do this. So that's how it really started. It was random, but leap of faith on my end. Because I remember my husband saying, are you spent, do not spend $2,000. We mm. don't have any money right now. We need mm. to, and I was like, click. I, I followed my gut feeling because it felt like it was the right thing to do for me at the time. Mm-hmm. So you started out as a solo practice. And how were those initial years doing solo? And when did you decide to go into group? So we have been in group practice for three years now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, so I was a mom. My priority was my little one. And then I was working for a nonprofit. And also I was juggling this private practice. I, what I did is I did boot camp. And within a few months, I worked on my website. I worked on connection. And initially, it fell flat. Um, I had a doctor that referred about 20 clients. Um, it's like was so afraid to do that phone consultation, especially when it came to money, that even when I had clients, that prospective clients that wanted to say, well, let's schedule something. I was like, well, why don't you check with insurance first? And then very timid. Mm. And so the way it worked was like the first few years were challenging. What was hard about those initial years of starting your private practice? Well, what was challenging that it was that it still felt uh, kind of like a new language to learn. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't all the years. The first Six months, I fell flat on even though everything that you teach us, I needed to build my own confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, the, within six months, I get my first client and things were going well. It was just like, it was so hard to work for those couple of years in a nonprofit and make sure that my private practice was going. So it was juggling all these things, being a mom, working a full-time in a nonprofit, and then uh, having my private practice, which I would work on Saturday and Sunday. Why didn't you leave the nonprofit? I mean, it was a couple of different reasons. I was really looking, the way I've worked as a therapist is I've always put myself into different scenarios so I can grow in different areas. Mm -hmm. And what that was like is, you know, either substance abuse facilities or inpatient psych or outpatient or mm-hmm. school settings, prisons. And this was a population that I hadn't worked much with and had a lot of trauma and I was under the substance abuse. But the LGBTQ was really appealing to me because it was a population that I hadn't immersed into it. And so I loved what I did. It just said I was feeling like, well, I like to learn these things, but I can see how much income I can make with like few hours. And it's a safety net. I think we're kind of mm-hmm. trained to have, uh, you know, a job that pays every two, um, two weeks. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have your schedule and you just put mm-hmm. your head down and you do that. And some, some pushback from other therapists in the area uh, w- that I worked with, actually, as a way kind of like, because my practice is, has never been uh, insurance-based. It's always been out of, out of uh, network. And so, you know, it's, it's insecurities, I think. 
yeah. that kept me there. Do you think, I mean, can you talk about your experience to, you're not from the U.S., correct? Mm-hmm. And how do you think that also plays into starting a practice when you're in a country that isn't your home country? I think that that plays a huge role and it depends on the person, but I, course, my but story please. is, yeah, my story is I moved here as an immigrant. I, I literally had $300 in my pocket mm-hmm. and I moved here at 20 years old and wanted to make it. Yeah. And so as an immigrant and a woman, I think yes. that these intersectionalities play a role on how you view yourself. So I always felt like a secondhand uh, citizen here because I moved as an adult, as a young adult. I didn't speak the language. I didn't have the documentation. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, didn't have all the resources. All I wanted to do is work, bring my family here, go to school, mm-hmm. which was also very important. And so how that plays a role is that that you know when your self is when you fear less and then you go into a field to help working in Detroit at the time you almost like judge ma- people making money and not consciously but for mm-hmm. me it was like I cannot work with higher end individuals I only have to work in the thick of inner cities mm-hmm. and I only have to work in psychiatric hospitals which was very heavy And I also think some of that can be a trauma response, right? Because Mm -hmm. you have your own trauma. I mean, definitely for me, it was traumatic to move here by myself uh, without, again, documentation, money, uh, language. So I just like threw myself in the middle of the ocean and I said to myself, go ahead and swim. Mm. Um, But I think that even if it was only being a woman, men tend to be more assertive not to be so binary right now but it's my experience has been that uh, you know gender plays a role as well Mm -hmm. and all the intersectionalities right i don't consider myself white but i also don't consider myself black so i can't identify with someone that's black and how they view um having a a career like this but for me that played a huge role my own intersectionalities my self-doubt you know, maybe that's all I can reach. What? Who am I? I have friends that are Americans or that, you know, have money. And here I am trying to make something different. Yeah. And I definitely felt that at my last job because they knew that I had a private practice. Because mm-hmm. I do, I don't mean to that mouth, therapist. I first said my own judgment towards mm-hmm. myself before... And then once I made the leap of faith with both of you, I felt a little bit judged by others and myself. Like, am I, you know, a good therapist or am I someone that um, can help, but I'm pushing back these individuals that don't have uh, the means of the insurance. And it's not pushed back, even now the language. It's more like refer them out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I wasn't telling them like, no, I cannot see you because I don't want to. It was more like, this is what works for me, but if it doesn't work for you, here you go. Yeah. So with that and all these different parts of you at play, what did it take for you to leave the nonprofit that you worked at? Oh, this is going to sound ridiculous because it wasn't like I felt overly confident and I left. I just um, started valuing my time and my Mm. time with myself and Mm. time with my kids 
And what really happened was that my brother got deported in the midst of, um, you know, uh, era where a lot of immigrants could not stay here. And that opened, that opened the door for me to do a lot of in the midst of all these changes. Mm-hmm. And that soul searching was more of a self-compassion piece where I had never really felt before. Mm-hmm. Where I could say to myself that I'm sorry you're going through this. Mm. And I know it sounds like cliche, but I I got the most awakening part of my life was then uh, through that mm-hmm. pain. And I realized that, you know, I'm getting myself sick by working all these hours. Mm. And here we are as therapists know that attachment is so important for our children and self-care is so important for us. And yet we don't do it. And so I had a, an epiphany and I said to myself, this is it. I cannot, you know, and I say it's ridiculous because in the midst of all this, I was also not feeling well. I was having some health issues mm. that I figured, you know, I should just take care of myself. What am I doing here instead of right. paddling? Yeah. So it took that, that much for me yeah. to kind of like, yeah and that and that makes sense too when you're coming here and there's this kind of fighting just to survive and fighting to get what you need and then being in a situation where your body had to speak up life was speaking up children are speaking up (laughs) relationships are speaking up to compel you to finally yep. to look within. Once you let go of yep. the nonprofit, what happened in your practice? Well, that's where my life started looking up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I obviously had more time. I could invest into the business. I also didn't do all the modules, which I would highly, highly suggest for everyone <laughs> to do them all because mm-hmm. I had no time. It was mm-hmm. kind of like, spotty the way I was doing uh, private practice and I had more time to grow as a clinician I was in a much more peaceful place and that's when clients were flowing Mm. which is I don't I have only like my organic data that when you're anxious as a therapist Mm -hmm. it seems like it's a dry spell yes (laughs) um (laughs) But uh, by now I know it has been almost eight years. So by now I know that I have to take care of me. And so that's when I noticed clients flowing, word of mouth, things were very easy to like attend to because I'm not working 40 hours Mm -hmm. and I'm still making more, by the way, Mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah. and so it felt like a fresh of that breath here because um, I'd never experienced working less, making more, and also like slowing down, which has always been my um, my desire. Because back home, you know, my culture is a little bit more laid back, like a lot of other cultures, especially in Europe. You know, you tend to enjoy life a little bit more, and work doesn't is not priority, and so. I also felt more connected with my background, what I was raised with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, 
did you decide to go into group practice? Well, it wasn't making any sense to refer clients out. I have a circle of friends that I love and I know that they do good work, but it got to a point, and obviously this is a good pro uh, problem to have, but it got to a point that I was referring too many people out mm. and I couldn't take anymore. Um, I also stood by, I did not want to see more than 20 clients that were felt that that number felt like full time for me. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking for clinicians that were interested and I found started with one. Mm -hmm. Then I hired the second clinician. Yeah. Then, you know, now I have four clinicians. Mm -hmm. And how did you fit a nonprofit in here? <laughs> uh, it's interesting because every year, so because my life changed so much after I dropped the nonprofit job, mm -hmm. I decided I want to go and it changed financially and time, right? So mm -hmm. I I wanted to go to my country for the first time in many years on vacation. I mean, I, I'd go there back and forth, but um, having children, not having money, it's really tough because only a ticket is $2,000 to go there. So, but your teaching was, when are you scheduling time for you? And so I decided that one month during summer, I want to spend time uh, with my family and I saw some clients when I was there which I would not suggest but it decreased some of my anxiety, anxiety. Mm -hmm. in the, at the time and I, I, dec I decreased the caseload tremendously but I saw some and so I went there and of course I feel really connected I have a child two children by that time because um, that's when I opened my uh, when I went there and, and so I decided to like look for like how can I make an impact impact back in my country and what who can I help and it happened to be that my hotel room was next to an orphanage center mm -hmm. and the people that worked at the hotel they said you cannot just walk in they will not let you in because you know they're dealing with children and you mm -hmm. have to like they have to know who you are and of course I'm like this I've been in the US for 18 years at the time um, and so almost like American mentality because I've been here for so long. Um, but I decided to just go and check if the director was open to talking about helping. And surprisingly, the director knew my best friend that lives there and is pretty accomplished. Uh, and so she trusted me just by like asking around who I was and then asked me for like my diploma and everything and said, now you can come in and what, what is your goal? What do you want? To, why do you want to do this? And skeptical, right? I was like, because I just want to give back and I have children of my own and it breaks my heart to see these kids without their parents. Mm -hmm. And the interesting part is about this orphanage was that parents were alive only some parents, you know, abandoned their children, but some parents could not afford raising mm. them. So they didn't have food or shelter. So they would leave them there to like, you know, for a better life. 
Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. You know, I I started getting connected with these kids. Uh, some some one of the kids was named my son's name, Alexander. Another one was my name, Sonila. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, they're just I want to bring them home. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting because that's how I started it. And then every year we'd go and just provide everything that they needed. So mm-hmm. when we travel, we pack for a family of four with one luggage, which I'm really proud of. <laughs> and then the other three luggages <laughs> go for the orphanage center or people that, that need something, either medication or Mm-hmm. iPads or blankets. Um, like one time, we dropped off um, security camera and one of those like it's not walkie-talkie, but I, my kids are five now. The the youngest is five. So what is the one that you put in the room to see the babies? Like a monitor. If they're like mm-hmm. monitor, yeah. So it's clearly, I'm I'm still learning the language because <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but yeah. I, brought some monitors for the babies because you know these women that would help I did end up trainings with them they would just like sleep in the same room because they didn't have a monitor to see if the baby was up or not Mm. and so I brought like um high chairs but the closed ones you know that you can Mm. put on chairs yes they didn't have any of that so kids were like running around and of course these kids have attachment issues so they're going to be a little bit more behaviorally uh, acting out, rightfully so. I mean, it's, it's expected. But this is what, how we started it. And then, you know, I find out that whatever money I was spending there mm-hmm. would not be counted for uh, gifts or like mm-hmm. donations because it was like you're just going out internationally and you're not giving it to... Actually, international help doesn't count for your taxes. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, this doesn't make sense because I'm working hard for this. I'm helping, but I'm also getting 35% charge for IRS. <laughs> for top, yes. For mm-hmm. this money on top of that. Yes. And so what I decided to do is hire a few people to help me with applying for a nonprofit here in Chicago. Because mm-hmm. our nonprofit is based here. Mm-hmm. And it's called careforalbania.org. Albania is my country. And Mm -hmm. so within three months, luckily, which is unheard of to get, you know, the nonprofit up and running quickly, we got approved. So now now we are a 501c3. Uh, There are other people that have helped, other Albanians that have helped a little bit. I am in the stages of making it bigger. Mm-hmm. than just our practice helping so only our private practice has been helping so far mm. the biggest um, money and donations and everything mm-hmm. that we do and so now I'm in the process of expanding and having other people sources. that donate yeah other sources yeah exactly I think, I think it's looking at how we look at all the different ways we can give back and what I appreciate about this is it's your story, your passion, again, that intersection of being in the US and being an immigrant and still having your heart there with your family and the people you grew up with 
And finding a way to have your practice give back and creating this nonprofit model, it is another way that we can make an impact in the world that I think many of us don't consider that there's so much more beyond sliding scale that you can make impact in very different ways. And it's a beautiful Mm -hmm. testament of how when you made space for honoring yourself, this is another way of honoring who you are and your story, but it's also it's reflected in your business. So your business can flourish and facilitate that for you. And it can be less forced and more with a nat. It feels like a natural flow from you of who you are. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I think it's very healing for me to help and to help people and kids that are kind of like what I was. I mean, I was a kid, 19 years old, being mm-hmm. raised in a very, like, um, I mean, you don't, 19 there, you still live with your parents, you know, mm-hmm. at the time at least. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, I felt like I was a kid. So it is honoring my story, honoring, you know, people that are suffering, combining it with like our, um, my field. And also I think that it's um, what's most, what I view a big lesson here is that my, my parents always gave, even as immigrants, you know, they would help back, but they didn't help themselves. Mm. And I broke the cycle of helping others, but yourself, even though it doesn't come out like that, but they always talked about, you know, respect others, get up if there is an older person, you know, to sit yeah. down mm-hmm. or be nice to others and help. And so, but never really said help yourself because yeah. it almost sounds selfish and it sounds like it's a bad thing. I would have never had what I have now if I right. didn't help myself first and my own family. Right. With yeah. time and money. Yeah. And then on top of that, I, when I talk, so our group is very, we have a really close group in our private practice and when we talk about money i usually say that money goes through us yes you, you know not gets stuck in us because once that happens then you're gonna have anxiety and you're not gonna know this with data obvious data but it's a subtle way of showing you like you're putting the blocks into your life here financially emotionally psychologically physically all of that mm-hmm. yeah I love that. And yeah, it's in you honoring who you are and what you needed allowed for you to grow this business that could support and give back in this way. And I know that that nonprofit is now going to grow again um, with the next iteration as you add in more donors and grants and things like that. But even as it is today, what a beautiful um, birth from taking care of you. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I want to ask for those who are listening, who, who do have a heart to give back. Um, I think you've already mentioned this about taking care of yourself, but is there anything else you want to add in terms of your lesson from starting from scratch and, you know, working multiple jobs, leaving that into build a group practice and a nonprofit. What is one of the encouraging things that you can give to someone listening today who's thinking, I would love to have that 
but I don't know if I can. Well, I was that person for all those years. And I think that, you know, being aware of your own mortality is really important. I think when we pause and we think that we're not going to have a life forever, mm-hmm. making an impact makes it a little bit more um pushy right more more stressful because you're like oh my gosh but it doesn't have to be like that for me knowing that hey wait a minute i've been working in this field in a non-profit job for all these years but i don't seem to be fulfilled moving on and again it's a process right you have to deconstruct everything that you've learned that's why i mentioned my parents giving but that doesn't mean that they gave me the lesson of give to yourself So I think that I would encourage anyone to first and foremost pause and check in with themselves where they are, because if you go day in and day out busy, the biggest mistake that we make is that we don't really listen to like the core values that we have. Mm -hmm. And I was that person for 15, 16 years where it's extremely busy, always busy with work and family and helping others. And when I paused, it really helped that now I can help at this large level with what I want, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever people I want, that's where my heart is. So not be more transparent versus in a busy bee and abstract that I have to work hard and I just need put my head down and do it and again this comes back to the intersectionalities as well yes how you think of yourself mm-hmm. um you know a white straight man will have a lot more confidence not everybody but in general they'll have a lot more confidence <laughs> to go and get it or ask for a raise and or do something that... right there's less consideration um, yeah like the yeah the oppression and the risk is different for e- each person and so yeah, it, it is very different. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but when I changed, when I uh, left my nonprofit job, I was the sole provider, uh, financial mm-hmm. provider, because my husband was staying home, was a stay at home dad. Mm-hmm. We couldn't afford $2,000 daycare, nor did I want to, because we both felt like this would be a good you know, choice. Mm-hmm. And so you have to think about all the, all the pieces, the, the, right? Of like, am I making the best choice? But if you don't make that leap of faith, if you don't try, it doesn't happen. And I know that it's easier said than done. That's why I've shared my story because it's not like my story has been rosy and I'm like not <laughs> aware of what poverty means. I mean, I literally, I remember, and I say this very proudly, by the way, but when I moved here, I remember cleaning houses. And then, you know, of course, I built myself up and going to school. And then when I was with my husband and my child, when I stopped um, the nonprofit job, we didn't have a lot of money. We literally were making it by having a link card, mm-hmm. uh, a support card from a, from a, uh, in Chicago to, to survive, to have food. And so I know what being dirt poor means. And I know someone can say, well, you know, I have to do this and I have to do that. The only reason I am where I am is because I had to pause and be compassionate towards myself 
Mm-hmm. Even from a sitting down perspective, working in an agency where I had to see eight clients a day, which is quite a lot. I don't even know how I did that. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we do what we have to do sometimes, I think. Um, and because we think that that is, well, the system tells us that's what's good or normal. And so we adhere to it. So Neela, thank you so much for sharing your story. I so honored to know you and I hope that this is inspiring to people for them to think through of how they're taking care of themselves honoring what they need yes there is risk taking but aligning to who you are and your values can pay off and that there are many ways that a practice can build into something beautiful that supports you and supports others so I appreciate you Of course, I appreciate you. I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for me and my family and my group practice. And you're part of this orphanage center. Mm, I love it. All right. If you love this episode, please share it. And I hope that you were inspired that you take action on your own practice. That maybe you are more willing to take a little bit more of a risk or to reflect on who you are and what you need. So we'll see you next time. I hope you loved today's episode. If you're a therapist who's tired of those long hours, low pay, and constantly battling burnout, don't forget our free video training designed just for you on how to build and grow a sustainable, profitable solo or group practice. Head over to zinnime.com slash podcast to check it out today. Until next time.